Uh, today we're going to hear about uh, holding on to our faith under pressure. We'll be considering what it looks like to live and to also thrive as a minority in our changing culture. We'll look at how to resist this culture that is increasingly resistant against the gospel, uh, how we are to train the next generation, and also the very important role of Christian community in all of this. Straight after the talk, we'll also have a quick Q&A session. We'll be accepting questions via text message. Uh, so if you have a question uh, that you'd like to ask, please SMS it through to the number that will uh, be on the slides just here um, and will remain up there. Um, so don't wait to the end of the talk to send in your questions. Uh, send it in while you think of it, as you think of it, and then um, so that we can get it up on a slide and then uh, be up here uh, for, for Q&A. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, learning more about how to live faithfully in this world uh, that we are in, because uh, so often it can feel really overwhelming, can't it? And I guess that's why events like this uh, is just so crucial. Uh, and so it'll be good to pray as we continue thinking about and learning about uh, living for our God in this world. So please, would you join with me in prayer? Our Father, we pray for our morning as we continue to learn how to live as Christians in a post-Christian Australia. We're thankful you provide ways for your people to be taught and equipped to be faithful. And we pray that you would be using your servant, Arcos, to do that for us today. May we come out of today's session with a better knowledge on how to resist the sin and evil of our culture that refuses to acknowledge its creator and to be encouraged to live in confident faithfulness until Christ returns. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, as I said before, we're going to get to know Arcos uh, once more. So why don't you pop up? And we have a few questions for you. Do you need a mic? You're really good at shouting. That's one of the things that we will learn about you. No, it's not. Um, but, whoop. Uh, well... There were a few questions yesterday, so maybe a couple of these would be repeats, um, like this one. How about you tell us a little bit about uh, where you live, where you're from, and also a little bit about your family. Sure. So, is that on? Yep. Cool. Um, so, I live in a beautiful part of the world, just uh, the Garden of Eden, a place called Lismore. It hasn't fallen or anything, it's just perfect paradise. Um, Northern rivers of New South Wales, just near Byron Bay, so that's where we live, beautiful regional town. Um, my family, so Sarah, my wife, here this morning, um, and three kids, uh, Lucinda, 11 years old, Mishka, my son, 9 years old, and Xavier, 4 years old. Uh, and, yeah, go to a great church, Southern Cross Presbyterian Church up in Lismore, and it's, yeah, we just love that part of the world, love doing ministry there, love working with people, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, how about um, you share with us uh, how you became a follower of Jesus? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in a nominally Christian home. I said last night that I'm, uh, I was born overseas in Eastern Europe, in Hungary. So I grew up in a Hungarian family, um, growing up in Sydney. So I guess a lot of Hungarians are nominally Christian. Uh, I, I went to Hungarian scouts. Would you believe that uh, you know, a lot of these ethnic groups from communist countries brought their movements out to Australia with them? And I went to Hungarian scouts where we had a prayer at the start of each uh, scout gathering. And it went something like this. Uh, I believe in God. I believe in, a home, in one homeland, I believe in God's eternal justice, and I believe in the resurrection of Hungary. Amen. <laughs> so I was very nationalistic, tied together. So that was the Christianity that I was sort of exposed to growing up. But then around year 11, um, I started thinking, year 10, year 11, I started to think that there's got to be more to life than just what you can see, touch, taste. Uh, sort of some of the issues that I talked about last night, that there has to be greater meaning to life. And under God's hand, it led me to... Uh, firstly, the New Age movement. I got involved in thinking about Eastern mysticism and meditation and all that sort of thing. Uh, but then a lot of these books that I was reading were quoting or rather misquoting the Bible. And I thought, the Bible, okay, it's, it looks like a good book. I might get into that a bit. And around that time, an older, my older brother became a Christian, um, invited along to a youth group, a local Anglican church in Western Sydney. Uh, and that's where I really was first exposed to the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that died and rise, uh, rose again for me. And so over a period of six months, I came to an understanding of who Jesus was and what he did for me. 
So yeah, that was the journey. Mm, wonderful. Uh, well, we heard yesterday that you used to be an engineer mm. and now you work for the Gospel Coalition. Um, what's one of the biggest joys in what you do there? Certainly. So the Gospel Coalition Australia, one of the biggest things we do is we've got a website that puts out content regularly, speaking to issues such as the one we're exploring uh, last night and, and this morning. Uh, so one of my biggest joys is just seeing our writers write about topics that connect with culture and help Christians think through how to respond to the different things that are happening in our culture. Uh, so just seeing articles take off, just seeing people engaging in comments and being encouraged and being challenged. Just love seeing that happen. Mm. Well, wonderful. Um, I'm sure plenty of us here have um, uh, benefited from uh, the material from Gospel Coalition. Um, well, thanks, Akos. I'll ask you to just take a seat. Um, it's, it's been great to get to know you. I'll just, um, we're going to move into a short discussion time, and there'll be three questions that will pop up on the screen just behind me. And I'd love for all of us to uh, just take some time to discuss these questions. And you're going to, uh, just like yesterday, um, form a group with the people in your pew or just around you. And for the next 10 minutes, we're going to uh, think about these questions. This is just to help us um, get our brain juices going um, and get us warmed up. So we'll have those questions up there um, and, and we'll spend the next 10 minutes doing that. So um, have a go. Hopefully you've got those brain juices going. Uh, so just remember, if you have a question that you uh, would like to ask in the Q&A session, just text it through um, on the number that will be on the slide. Uh, but for now, we're going to ask our costs to come up. Thanks. Thanks, Michelle. And could I just say once again, thanks to John and the church, all of you guys here for inviting Sarah and my self up or down. Uh, it's just wonderful to be here to share from God's word, to share this wisdom about um, how we can live as Christians in a post-Christian age. I should say that these talks, you might have noticed last night, they're not like sermons as such. I will be preaching here tomorrow, um, but these are more talks around a particular issue, more issues based. So we will dive into the Bible at particular times, but it's more looking at uh, the bigger issues. So coming at it from that angle rather than as a sermon. Just thought I'd clarify that. Uh, if you want to find out more about our website, the Gospel Coalition Australia, the easiest thing is just to Google the Gospel Coalition Australia, and that'll take you to our website where we have the articles where we engage these sorts of issues. Uh, I also have a blog, personally, where I do uh, some separate writing around this type. So just Google my name, Arcos Balog, uh, and my blog should come up there, hopefully. All right, why don't we pray, and then we'll get into it. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this morning. Thank you that you've brought us together. Uh, help us to think clearly now about how we can defend the faith and make sure that we stand strong under the pressures uh, that we face and will inevitably face uh, in our post-Christian age. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've had the pleasure of coaching my nine-year-old son's soccer team for the last two years, the Lismore Thistles Rangers. Now, has anyone coached kids' soccer before? Oh, yes, we do have a coach. Fantastic. That's great. Now, it's not that I have any particular soccer skills. I mean, I am a wog, so you might think it's in the blood. Uh, but to be honest, I was just the last parent standing when they looked around to see who can uh, actually coach, who's got the time. And I'm like, i got the time, but anyway... So I've never coached kids soccer before, but hey, I mean, how hard could it be to coach a bunch of eight-year-old boys? I thought, you know, how hard could that be? Anyway, at the start of last year, so at the start of last year's season, so around um, April 2017, we rocked up to our first game against the Lismore Workers Club. I mean, there's a few mean-looking eight-year-olds there on the other team, but that doesn't phase us. And so our team step onto the field, and I'm the ref. Never refed a game in my life, and I blow the whistle. And my son's team is off, chasing the ball like bees around a honeypot. Even our goalie comes out for a bit of a go. Get back in goals, I tell him. Anyway, in that game, it doesn't matter. The Lismore Workers team did the same thing, and we ended up winning. It's a great start to the season. But later in the season, we ended up playing a much harder team, a much better team. Now, there's a town not far from us called Casino. Now, it's not the gambling capital of the Northwest, but uh, a town called Casino, and they've got a soccer team, the Casino United Soccer Team. Now, this team, they were good. They walked on the field, and they had positions, which they stuck to for the entire game. And as I blew the whistle, within minutes, Casino scored. 
again and again and again. I think the final score was around 13-0. And yes, there were tears, especially from me. But it was a good learning experience. We learned that it's not enough to just try and score goals, just to try and run the ball to the other side. You also needed to defend. You needed to be able to defend well, especially against a strong attacking team. Now, just like a soccer team needs to be able to defend well, so do churches and Christians. For as we saw last night, we're increasingly under attack. We're increasingly seen as immoral, as oppressive. We're increasingly treated with suspicion because of our religion. At times, even with hostility. So what does it look like to have a strong defence as Christians and as churches? What does it look like to defend well? Well, last night we explored the cultural pressures on us. And so we'll start now by understanding how these cultural pressures affect us, how these cultural pressures affect us as Christians. So if you look down at the first point, uh, we'll explore when surviving as a minority means you need to start acting like one. Now, I want you to imagine that you're taking part in a psychological experiment. You know you really are. My wife's here as a psychologist and she's psychoanalyzing each of you. No. Um, if we can have the slide up, please. That's fairly self-explanatory there, isn't it? That's the uh, experiment. Uh, you've been seated. Imagine you're seated in a row of 10 people and you're all looking at the same two pieces of card a few metres away, so shown up on the PowerPoint. You've got a card on the right, which has one vertical line, and you've got a card on the left, which has three vertical lines. Ten people in a row, you're at the edge of the row, all looking at the same card. Now, now in this experiment, each person's job uh, in the row is to estimate which of the three vertical lines on the left-hand card, so left-hand card, three vertical lines, which of those is the closest in length to the vertical on the right-hand card? All right, so three vertical lines on the left. Pick one of those to see which is closest to the vertical line on the right-hand card. All right, um, sounds easy. Who wants to give it a go? Who wants to tell me which of the lines on the left-hand card is the same length as the line on the right-hand card? Anyone brave enough to put up their hand? Yes. The middle one. Okay, yep. So, anyone else want to differ? Nope. Fairly straightforward. The middle card, middle line, is the same as the line on the right. Case closed, right? Fairly straightforward. Well, remember the, in the experiment, you're one of ten people. And you are the last person to give your answer. And what happens in this experiment as people start giving their answers, starting from the other end of the row and going one by one down the row towards you, everybody else is choosing a different line. They're actually choosing the line on the far left. Now, obviously, this is the wrong answer. So what do you say? Do you stick to your guns and say, no, no, I know I'm right, everybody else is wrong? Or do you change your answer to conform to what other people are saying? Well, as it turns out, this was a real experiment done in the 1950s. And the person sitting on the end, the 10th person, i.e. you, if you were part of the experiment, you're the only real subject. Everybody else has planted there deliberately to give the wrong answer. And so what happened in real life? What did the person on the end actually say? Well, we've got statistics, and they're quite surprising. So three quarters of the subjects, the tenth person on the end, three quarters of them gave the wrong answer at least once. 75% gave the wrong answer to that simple question at least once. They were asked the question a few times. More than a third, more than a third, gave the wrong answer for more than half the time. So the third of the people gave the wrong answer for half the time they were giving their answers. And interestingly enough, all female groups tended to conform significantly more than all male groups. 
Now, when the subjects were later asked about their motives, some actually believed that the incorrect answer had been the correct one. Others were confident that the rest of the group were wrong, but they didn't want to say so. I mean, why make waves? And here's the interesting thing. Levels of conformity dropped dramatically if subjects were given a partner alongside them who was also told to agree and to say the right answer. But conformity rose again if the partner was suddenly called out of the room. So what's the point of that experiment? Well, these experiments demonstrate how hard it is to swim against the flow. I mean, even with a simple, drop-dead, easy task like this, not controversial in any way, nobody was getting upset at you, but still, people tended to conform. They conform because of social pressure, not overt, outrageous, angry pressure, but just the implicit pressure that everybody was behaving differently than them. Right, thanks for the slide. I'll take that one off. Now, if you're anything like me, you might think to yourself, yes, it's hard for others to swim against the flow. I know that it's hard for other people. But hey, I can stand against the tide of my surrounding culture all alone by myself. I'm strong. But if that's you, then we're deluding ourselves, as experiments like this demonstrate. So a social psychologist at New York University, Jonathan Haidt, he puts it this way. Other people exert a powerful force, able to make cruelty seem acceptable and doing good seem embarrassing without giving us any reasons or arguments. That's the power of implicit social pressure. And the greater the cost it is of non-conforming, the more likely you'll fall into line. And so, I'm sure we've been in that situation where we felt like the odd one out for whatever reason. But what do we do? What do we do when you feel like the odd one out? When it's obvious that everyone around you is very different from you? What, what sort of reactions do you have? Anyone want to shout out an answer? Move, move? yep. It gets uncomfortable, so you actually move out of the situation. Yep. What if you can't move? What if you're stuck there? You start talking really fast. Okay, so you get anxious. Yep, yep. Or if you're like me, you don't say anything at all. You just try and stay quiet, stay under the radar. And so when it comes to, become, when it comes to being Christian, I think the obvious example is when everybody around us is non-Christian and we're Christian, the temptation is to just stay silent about being Christian. We don't, or we search for possible reasons to change our mind if we're constantly around people that think differently to us. I mean, we might even ask questions about, does the Bible really teach what it says, teach what my church believes about sexuality? These sorts of questions can come up in our minds. And so if you're a cognitive minority, that is, a cognitive minority, psychologists have this term, that's a minority whose views differ significantly from the mainstream. If you're a cognitive minority, then immediately you're under pressure. You're under pressure to conform to give up your beliefs, even if your beliefs are as simple as how long, which line is the longest or which line is the right length. Now, are we Christians used to being cognitive minorities? Are we Christians used to being the minority in our culture? Well, a little perhaps. I think as Christians we've always been different from the greater culture out there. Being a follower of Jesus means that there's inherent differences. But I think we're starting to feel differences now in a way we've never felt that before. I mean, for a long time, Christians have occupied the cultural mainstream um, that it's hard to think of ourselves as a minority. Your Muslim friends, they know what it's like to be a minority. Your Jewish or Hindu friends know that as well. But I think it's quite new for us. And what's worse, we're not just a cognitive minority, we're not just a minority having beliefs that are different from the mainstream, as we saw last night, we're also seen as an immoral minority. We're seen as having inferior or even dangerous morals to everyone else. And where does that put us then? Well, that puts us 
and especially our children and youth, in a dangerous place, socially, psychologically, and because of those things, spiritually. The pressure to conform, to give up your beliefs, is increasing. And so what should Christians do? How do we survive and thrive as this cognitive minority, as a minority that is so different, increasingly different from the mainstream? Well, we need to have a good defensive game. We need to take steps to safeguard, to defend, to nurture our beliefs. And to do that, we need to understand plausibility structures. So if you look on the outline, plausibility structures, a very important term that I think we need to get our heads around. So imagine you're sitting around the lunch table at work, at school, at uni, um, and the topic is the news that an AFL player has recently come out as gay. Now, as you look around, you notice everyone nodding their heads uh, and approving of the gay lifestyle. Good for them, someone says. Uh, someone else points to the safe school program, saying how great it is that the government's making it mandatory. And everyone just seems to be agreeing. There's no disagreement or controversy. Now, what's happening around that lunch table? Well, the idea that the gay lifestyle should be affirmed and celebrated, it's getting social support. It's being shown to be plausible or acceptable, trustworthy. It's being given the social life support that that idea needs to survive. See, all ideas need a plausibility structure if they're to be accepted by people. They need what's known as social life support. Um, because, and here's the thing, most of the things we believe, we take on trust. We hold the vast majority of our views because other people, particularly people that we trust, also believe the same things. So last night, you remember, there was a question about, you know, why do people believe these irrational, irrational views about identity, about individualism? Why do people believe that sort of nonsense? And the answer? Because of the plausibility structure around the people. Because everybody around them believes the same thing. And so if you grow up in that, if that's the plausibility structure around you, then chances are that you're going to believe it as well. And so an idea's plausibility, its believability, is strengthened when it's frequently heard in the media or advanced by attractive role models or by intellectual elites, you know, the Ros Wards of the, school, of the uh, universe who seem to know what they're talking about. These are all plausibility structures giving ideas the social support they need for people to accept them. And so how might this apply to Christians? It applies to us like this. If you want your group's ideas to survive, if you want the gospel to survive, uh, humanly speaking, then it needs to be nurtured and strengthened in our particular social setting. It has to be made plausible to members of our group Otherwise, they won't keep believing it. Uh, you need intellectual leaders. You need role models that you can trust. You need the opportunity to talk about the Bible together, which means you need to meet regularly together to make this happen. Now, I'm sure this isn't news for any of you. We know that it's important to go to church. But I think this is why. This is one reason why God didn't just give us the Bible and say, you know, a few times a week, just by yourself, read the Bible. I think this is why God gave us the church, to meet together, to strengthen each other. I mean, Hebrews chapter 10, 25 puts it bluntly. It says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church needs to be its own plausibility structure where the gospel is nourished and strengthened and made plausible for its members. If a minority is going to survive and thrive, it needs to start acting like a minority. But what if the local church is weak? The leaders don't model what it looks like to live out the gospel. There's little talk or affirmation about the goodness of God's plan, whether marriage or sexuality. There's silence or even embarrassment about some of the Bible's teaching. What might happen then to its members, particularly the younger members? Well, they're in danger of conforming at that point to the surrounding culture, of no longer confessing Jesus as Lord. And which is why we need a strong Christian community that nurtures and upholds the faith. And it needs to do this boldly and confidently within itself. It needs to be a community where people are welcomed and nourished by the gospel.
That's the key defensive strategy. Which means that we need to meet regularly with one another. On Sundays, during the week, in each other's homes. Now, it doesn't mean we become Christian ghettos. We don't withdraw from society, having only Christian friends and no one else. We're on a mission, and we'll see that in the next talk. But we need regular contact with each other. We need to hear the Bible read, taught, sung together. And weekly is a great idea. If you're going to survive and flourish as a minority, then we need to start acting like one. We need to keep gathering together and nourishing each other with God's word. Okay, moving on. Now, I think another increasingly important skill in our post-Christian age is knowing how to have meaningful conversations with others, uh, particularly those that are suspicious or hostile to Christianity. Uh, imagine you're at work. You've just started a new workplace, a university perhaps, and there's rainbow-coloured flags all along the walls where you work. And you get to know some colleagues, and then they find out that you're Christian, and then one lunchtime, a colleague openly in front of everyone else around the lunch table says something like, why are Christians so bigoted? Just throws that out there. How do you respond? If a non-Christian family member tells you that your religion is dangerous, what do you say? Anyone been in a situation like that? Group situation, someone throws out this inflammatory comment and you're just left wondering, what do I do with that? Well, if you haven't been there, chances are you will one day. Uh, we feel tongue-tied, we feel anxious, uh, we want to get out of there perhaps. Maybe we start talking and that just all comes out. But is there a better way? I think there is. And I think it's about learning how to have a better conversation. Now, in the context of suffering for being a Christian, the Apostle Peter says this. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, 1 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16, the Apostle Peter says, But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. Now notice what we're to do. We're prepared. We need to be prepared to make a defence. That idea of making a defence is where the word apologetics comes from. And how are we to do this? Well, it says, Peter says, with gentleness and respect. Now when you're on the spot, perhaps when someone accuses you of believing harmful things, how do you respond with gentleness and respect? I want to suggest there's a simple but effective way to respond to tough questions and accusations. And it's a way that I think is really helpful to learn in our current climate when we're the minority. And it's by doing this. It's by taking the conversation further upstream. Taking the conversation further upstream. Now what I mean is this. Everyone, whether an atheist or a Christian, is driven by underlying beliefs about reality. Underlying beliefs about what it means to be human, why we're here, what our purpose is. So when someone asks a question or makes an accusation about Christianity, their views are driven by these underlying beliefs, underlying worldviews. And if we can uncover and discuss those underlying beliefs, then we'll have a more fruitful conversation. We'll be better able to understand where they're coming from. And we'll be able to show how the gospel is different and better than what they believe. So how do you move the conversation further upstream? How do you move the conversation further upstream, particularly when there's an inflammatory comment thrown your way? Well, there's two questions. Two questions that you need to ask. Uh, I found these incredibly helpful. Um, the first question is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? It should be there on your sheet. Um, Someone throws out an accusation, you first have to clarify what your non-Christian neighbour is saying rather than assuming. Um, this is especially important today when people throw around buzzwords like homophobia, marriage equality, bigotry. You need to understand what they mean. What do you mean by that? 
And the second question is, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to that conclusion? Once we understand what our non-Christian friend's saying, we can then move the conversation upstream to find out what they believe about it. Asking how they came to their view, how, how they came to their conclusion, that takes the conversation further upstream in their thinking. Now again, as you ask these questions, and I'll give you an example in a moment, but as you ask these questions, I should say something very important. Um, if you ask any good psychologist, they'll tell you that in communication, tone is very important. So you can ask the question in a curious way, which is what I recommend, like, hmm, what do you mean by that? Or, hmm, how did you get to that conclusion? Or you could ask, like, ask it very aggressively. What do you mean by that? How did you get to that conclusion? Do you see the difference? Remember, 1 Peter chapter 3, gentleness and respect. Gentle, sort of curious sort of tone is what we're here for, what we want to see. And if we go upstream far enough in the conversation, if we ask these questions maybe a couple of times, we'll be able to share how the gospel is different and better than their particular view of reality. Okay, you ready for an example? Here's an example. Again, you're at the proverbial lunch table. A friend just says to you, why do Christians hate gay people? And what's your response? Remember, first question, quick as a flash. Let's say together, first question you ask is, what do you mean by that? And they respond, well, don't Christians think that gay people go to hell? Okay, so we're getting a bit deeper. They're starting to uncover it. And they've stated their view. Okay, so we want to take at this point, we want to take the conversation a bit further upstream. What's the question we ask at this point? Let's hear it together. How did you come to that conclusion? Or what makes you say that? What makes you believe that? And your friend says, um, well, that Israel Folau character on social media, that's what he said, wasn't he? I mean, isn't Israel Folau a Christian and he said that gay people go to hell? Now, notice what's just happened. You've just been initially put on the spot, having, thrown, having been thrown this accusation that Christians hate gay people. And where are we now in the conversation? They're asking about hell. They're asking about, well, what does the Bible teach about hell? Doesn't... Does it teach that everybody goes to hell? Gay people go to hell? You've now moved the conversation upstream to a position where you can answer their question from the gospel. You can say something like, well, when it comes to hell, the Bible says that we all deserve hell. But that's why Jesus came to rescue us, to die for us, so that we could all be forgiven. Do you see what's just happened? From an inflammatory accusation, you're put on the spot thinking, what do I do with that? You're now in a position where you're much better able to share the gospel. Two questions. What do you mean by that? Second question, how did you come to that conclusion? Now, as you do that, as you ask those questions with gentleness and respect, uh, there's another helpful rule that might be helpful to keep in the back of your mind. And the rule is this, that the person that brings up the accusation, the person that makes the accusation, they're the one responsible for backing it up. They're the ones responsible for, I guess, in a sense, justifying their accusation. All you need to do is ask the questions. You're not there having to be the you know, defence lawyer trying to defend against the accusation. You can easily turn the tables, as it were, in a very nice way, back onto them. Because when it comes to uh, accusations, remember plausibility structures, most people... Just take on board accusations and, and think these thoughts without even having thought about it themselves. They've just absorbed it from the media. And by simply asking them to explain their beliefs, you can often, in a curious way of course, turn the tables and put them on the spot, getting them to back up their views. That takes the heat off you and it puts you in a much better position to take the conversation to the gospel. Now, moving on, probably the most urgent area that we're facing this challenge uh, in terms of the cultural pressure on us, as we saw last night, is from the area of sexuality. And so what we need is we need a strong Christian apologetic, by which I mean arguments, a defence, and a compelling counter-story that shows the truth, beauty and goodness of God's design for sexuality. Uh, if we don't come up with a compelling story that shows that God's view of sexuality is so much better than the world's view, 
uh, then especially our young people are going to start feeling ashamed about their faith. Especially as they see respected gay people in the media, as they see pride events at the footy, as safe schools takes over. And so what's a Christian defence of human sexuality? Uh, while I don't have time this morning to give a comprehensive outline, I think it involves two important steps. Hopefully they're on your outline. The first is we need to be able to critique the sexual revolution. Now, what we need to be able to do is to critique the promises of the sexual revolution. So the sexual revolution, if you remember back to last night, promised things such as freedom, fulfillment, self-discovery, joy. Has that revolution achieved its promises? Are the most vulnerable, namely women and children, better off as a result of the free love that has been unleashed on our society? Well, the short answer is no. Um, interestingly enough, sociologists have pointed out that the people who have swallowed the sexual revolution, not just in theory but in practice, are in the English-speaking world, the working classes. Uh, so, for example, in France, uh, a child from a white working-class single-parent family has a 1 in 90 chance of having three or more stepdads as they grow up. So 1 in 90 chance, white working class family in France. Uh, in Sweden, the stats are a little bit higher. A child from a working class family has a 1 in 40 chance of having three or more stepdads as they're growing up. So obviously three or more stepdads, that's a lot of broken families that a child goes through. In America, that number drops to 1 in 12. One in 12 white working class kids, white working class kids growing up uh, have three or more stepdads. Now, to get a feel for this, I thought I'd play you an audio clip from an audio book. Uh, there's an author called J.D. Vance, an American author. He's one of those kids from that white working class background, and he grew up in such a family. Now, as, as his voice sounds, he's reading out his book. It's a best-selling book uh, called Hillbilly Elegy about the white working class background he's from. He's only 30 years old, uh, but I'll get the boys at the back to play the clip, so listen to what he says about his experience of going through family after family. I moved in with Mammal. In the middle of the third grade, we left Middletown and my grandparents to live in Preble County with Bob. At the end of fourth grade, we left Preble County to live in a Middletown duplex on the 200 block of McKinley Street. At the end of fifth grade, we left the 200 block of McKinley Street to move to the 300 block of McKinley Street, and by that time, Chip was a regular in our home, though he never lived with us. At the end of 6th grade, we remained on the 300 block of McKinley Street, but Chip had been replaced by Steve, and there were many discussions about moving in with Steve. At the end of 7th grade, Matt had taken Steve's place, Mom was preparing to move in with Matt, and Mom hoped that I would join her in Dayton. At the end of 8th grade, she demanded that I move to Dayton, and after a brief detour at my dad's house, I acquiesced. At the end of ninth grade, I moved in with Ken, a complete stranger, and his three kids. On top of all that were the drugs, the domestic violence case, children's services prying into our lives, and Papaw dying. Today, even remembering that period long enough to write it down invokes an intense, indescribable anxiety in me. Not long ago, I noticed that a Facebook friend, an acquaintance from high school with similarly deep hillbilly roots, was constantly changing boyfriends, going in and out of relationships, posting pictures of one guy one week and another three weeks later, fighting on social media with her new fling until the relationship publicly imploded. She is my age with four children, and when she posted that she had finally found a man who would treat her well, a refrain I'd seen many times before, her 13-year-old daughter commented, just stop. I want you and this to stop. I wish I could hug that little girl. That's the havoc that the sexual revolution has wreaked, especially among the working classes. And children, the most vulnerable, are the ones that are most affected by it. So marriage breakdown, in large part caused by that romantic individualist view of relationships, causes enormous heartache and pain. Children are the ones that are the paying the price. It doesn't really sound like the promises of the revolution are being kept, does it? So that's the better critique. That's the critique that we need to show to the world. 
Secondly, we need to tell a better story. Now, we heard the story of the sexual revolution last night. It's a compelling story to our culture in so many ways, a story that promises freedom, freedom from oppression, freedom to experience who you are. And as a story, grips our hearts in ways that dry evidence never can. So what's a better story, a more compelling story for our culture? Now, I read one author who had a go at this, um, and I think he did a good job, but here's a shorter one that I've come up with. Um, it's, you can, I'm sure you can refine this and make it a much more uh, better told story, but I, th these are just the bare bones of what a story, a better story from God's, uh, of God's sexual uh, plans might look like. And it goes something like this. So I'll just read it out. It says, as human beings, we were designed for fulfilling relationships, relationship with God, our creator, relationships with fellow humans, including fulfilling successful sexual relationships. But how do we decide how to use our sexuality in relationship? Is it just based on what feels good? Well, that was the message of the sexual revolution. But has it delivered on its promises? Are we as a society living happier, more sexually fulfilled lives than before? Are our marriages better? Are our kids in happier, more stable families than before? I think the answer is no. What about nature? Can we look to the animal kingdom to tell us what is good about sexuality? Well, many would point to penguins as models of monogamy and matriarchy. But why look at penguins? Why not look at dolphins or ducks where coerced sex, male on female, is common? The animal kingdom doesn't offer a reliable template for human sexual relationships. So if feelings aren't a good guide and we can't look to nature, who do we turn to? Well, as it turns out, Jesus Christ shows us what loving, fulfilling relationships look like. While Jesus didn't enter a sexual relationship himself, he showed enormous care, commitment and compassion in all his relationships and called on us to do the same, including in marriage. More than that, Jesus showed himself trustworthy because he gave his life for us so that we might live and interestingly enough, social science and human experience shows us that living Jesus' way in relationships is good for all of us. It works. It's fulfilling, whether you're a Christian or not. And yet, as Christians, we confess that we haven't always lived up to Jesus' ethical demands. When it comes to sexual relationships, we've been too ready to shame those who didn't agree with us or who lived differently instead of showing them the compassion that Jesus showed them. When it comes to sex itself, Christians have often been prudish and ashamed of God's good gift rather than celebrating it and the creator who gave it to us. When it comes to marriage, Christians have often idolized it, assuming it to be so important that the singles sometimes felt left out and marginalized. But no more. We're here to propose, not impose. We're here to hold out God's good design for human marriage as of benefit to all, especially the most vulnerable, namely women and children. Sure, you could have a go at rewriting that and make it a better told story. But that's the bare bones of the story that we need to tell, the better story about human sexuality, the better story that, who knows, under God might capture our society's imagination again. But certainly we want it to capture each other's imagination so that we're not taken captive by what the world says. Okay, let me bring it together. <clears throat> I started uh, this morning by talking about my son's soccer team, how they began the season as a bunch of individual kids chasing the ball around each game like bees around a honeypot. But over the season, uh, my son's team, the Thistles Rangers, started working together. They started seeing themselves as a team, passing the ball, helping each other out, marking the other players, defending well. And later that season, we played casino again the fearsome Casino United. And I've got to say, our team did so well. They each played their part, they defended well, all because they worked together as a team, all because they were united. As important as playing defence as a team is on the soccer field, it's even more important here at church. Gathering together, staying united, nurturing each other in the Word of God, living out the better story, that's how you stay strong. That's how you defend well. That's how you live in this post-Christian age. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you didn't leave us to ourselves, but sent the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us and to bring us back into relationship with you and to bring us back into relationship, a good relationship with each other. Father, we pray that as churches, we would be nurturing, meeting together, gathering together and encouraging one another, especially as we see the cultural pressures on us increase. And may you bless this, may you bless our churches so that we're able to grow and encourage and be strong until that great day arrives when the Lord Jesus returns. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Icos. Well, we're going to enter our time of Q&A. Thanks for those who have uh, submitted questions via text message. I'm going to have a go um, at looking at them now and um, Icos answering them. Uh, so let's have our first one up. Uh, is there a risk that plausibility structures can become echo chambers? Uh, how do we still stay sharp in churches, uh, Christian schools, so that we can make the Christian ethic plausible, but also be able to engage with other people's plausibility structures? Absolutely. Um, sorry. All right, can you hear me? It's the echo. Oh, echo from that. Oh, the echo chamber. There we are. We're in an echo chamber. Uh, is there a risk that plausibility structures can become echo chambers? Absolutely. Uh, I've got to say that our whole culture is an echo chamber. Um, if you look at the media, they just talk about the same things. Everybody's in agreement. Um, look, I, I think there is that danger that there's an echo chamber and we need to be aware of that. Uh, I want to suggest that it's probably less of a danger than we think because we are in the world. We are listening to the media. We are uh, amongst one another. Uh, amongst non-Christian friends, but um, maybe there's, I guess, maybe there's a lesson there that we need to take that extra effort, and we'll learn about this in the next talk, to actually get out there and mix it up with our non-Christian friends and family. So yeah, there's a danger, so let's make sure we don't become one. How do we stay sharp as churches slash Christian schools that we can make the Christian ethic plausible, but also be able to engage with other people's plausibility structures? Um, look, I think 1 Peter 2.12, again, I'll share this in the next talk, um, lift such good lives amongst the pagans or non-Christians that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I think it's all about living amongst your non-Christian friends uh, ideally with some other Christian friends, so you're doing it together, um, in such a way that your life is open and transparent and they can actually see your life. And looking at your life, looking at the way you care about them, the way you love them, I think that's probably the strongest apologetic, that's probably the strongest uh, way to recommend the Christian faith. Uh, we'll see in the next talk that most people today need to see that Christianity is good before they'll see it as true. And the way to show that Christianity is good is to show the way that you love them, care for them, and so forth. Yep. Thank you. Um, just before our second question comes up, there'll be just a couple more questions, and then um, if anybody here would like to ask one, there'll be some roaming mics. Great. So uh, our second question. Uh, do you think Christians have overemphasized defending gay marriage at the expense of other pressing issues such as abortion, uh, rampant divorce rates and poor parenting? Yeah, look, that's, that's a good question. Um, uh, I guess obviously last year we had the same-sex marriage vote and there was a lot of uh, defending against gay marriage or defending traditional marriage. Um, I think there's always a danger that we might uh, elevate one issue more than others. I'm not sure if it's as simple as saying Christians have overemphasized it, because at the same time as Christians have talked about gay marriage, uh, Christians have also, other Christians have also talked about abortion. Um, but when it comes to rampant divorce rates, yeah, I, I think maybe that's something Christians are, are less uh, likely to talk about. Um, I think it's an issue that's touched churches very personally, so I think it's a lot harder for Christians to talk about divorce rates. And, and poor parenting. Um, so maybe there is a challenge, I guess, for those in Christian leadership uh, to think about the other issues and not just some. I think that's a fair challenge. That's a fair call from that question. Um, but having said that, when it comes to an issue like gay marriage, as we're seeing now, uh, it's not just the case you change the law, some gay people get married and everything that goes on as before. Uh, you change the understanding of marriage, you're also changing the understanding of what it means to be human and that has flow-on effects. 
And that's why there's been such media hoo-ha over the Christian schools, you know, being free not to have to hire gay teachers. I mean, that's, I think it's working its way downstream. So in that sense, I don't think uh, elevating gay marriage or defending against gay marriage has been a bad move. I think it's been the right move. Um, but I take the point. There are other issues that Christians need to think about as well. Uh, and our final question. Uh, assuming you've asked the meaningful questions, what do you do when they are still apathetic or stubborn and happy to live in a la land uh, and in their uh, inconsistent worldview? One answer, you pray. Look, ultimately, and I don't mean that uh, to, to throw it off or anything, I'm, I'm saying that ultimately it's God that changes uh, people's hearts, but he changes people's hearts through us. So it's not just like God zaps people with the Holy Spirit here and there and they become Christian. He uses you guys to talk to them and to share the gospel with them. All I'm giving you with some tools is to be able to have those conversations uh, in a way that's perhaps uh, a little bit less emotionally volatile, in a way that uh, takes the emotional temperature down, and in a way that takes the conversation to the gospel in a much more natural and flowing way. Um, but if after doing the best job you possibly can, they're still stubborn and happy to live in la-la land, all you can do is all you can do. So do the best you can, pray, uh, and keep loving them. Yep. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, we'll accept some questions from the floor if there are any, and um, our uh, helpers here will be able to give you a mic. Uh, so any questions? Great. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Uh, you you uh, mentioned that the uh, working classes are more um, susceptible or something to these issues. Why do you think that's the case? That's a very good question. Yeah, it's interesting because on one hand, the people that go to university, they're the ones that soak up the theory very clearly from uh, you know, the university culture. Uh, and yet they're the ones that go on to get married and, and generally stay married once you're an educated person. Uh, that just seems to be the way it is. Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I think maybe there's some breakdowns that happened uh, you know, a generation or two ago and, and that's had a flow-on effect. Um, uh, it's hard to say whether it's correlation or causation, whether it's just because if you come from an educated family, generally you have better social support that's able to withstand those pressures. Uh, and if you're working class, um, maybe there's pressures that lead you to become working class um, that means you have less social support. Uh, at this stage, I'm only guessing, so I'm not too sure, but it's, a, but it's an excellent question. Um, and I'm sure some sociologist has worked it out, so it might be worth Googling, because um, I think that's, yeah, that's a very good point. One of the things that I noticed um, in the, the marriage debate was that Christians or the church, um, ACL, had a tendency to engage in the debate on their turf. In other words, we would use arguments that um, were very human in their orientation, if you know what I mean. So without referring to the gospel, or this is what the Bible says, we would talk about the impact on society and so on, which really then came down to our opinion versus other opinions and didn't give us any sort of, we weren't speaking with any extra authority. Um, what comments can you make on that? Yeah, I think what they did, so the Coalition for Marriage, I was very familiar with them. Um, so that, that was a tactical move, it was a political move, um, because they said, look, in politics, you know, slogans like stop the boats, th those sort of sloganeering works, you know, they're, they're, they're political messages that actually have an impact, for, for better or ill. So they, they took the line that, okay, this is a political question uh, about a law, and so let's argue it politically in the public square. Um, Ideally, and I guess this is what the questions that I shared with you uh, are good for, ideally the best thing you want to do is to be able to take the conversation further upstream away from just keeping it at politics. Um, so if you're talking one-on-one -on -one with someone about an issue, um, let's say last year was gay marriage, uh, ideally what you would have wanted to do is, as you say, take the conversation further upstream to the gospel, look at the underlying beliefs about what is it about their view of marriage versus the Christian marriage, uh, how does the... Bible's view of reality different from the view of reality that pushes gay marriage. And I think at that point you could have had a more fruitful conversation. Uh, the challenge, of course, is it's quite difficult to do that in the public square. Um, 
But yeah, I, I think they could have done a better view. I think the coalition of marriage could have done a better view of taking it to the gospel. Um, of course, they were a coalition of not just Christian groups, but you know, Jewish groups as well. So I guess that was a tactical move on their part. They thought you know, this might be gain us a better outcome. But looking back, should they have stayed more true to the Christian faith and taken the conversations to the gospel? Yeah, I think that's a fair call. Yep. But it's hard the time. We might have time for just one more question if there is um, someone who would like to ask. Uh, I was wondering, um, so when critiquing the sexual revolution in terms of um, families and marriage, um, how do we both gently and respectfully um, answer responses where uh, people might say can't single parents or blended families do as good of a job or if not better than perhaps like long-term dysfunctional married couples or when Christian families also break down? Yep, sure. So how do we uh, engage with questions about uh, single-parent families doing as good a job uh, as dysfunctional married families? Look, I, I think you need to be honest and say, yep, a lot of uh, families are dysfunctional. Just because a couple remains married doesn't mean that uh, it's going to be a functional marriage. Um, but at the same time, I think you want to say that uh, the exception doesn't prove the rule. Or maybe, sorry, is that the other way? The exception sometimes proves the rule. So those are exceptions. So there are exceptional single-parent families. Uh, there are dysfunctional married families. But as a general rule, um, married couples uh, that are functional um, do a much better job. Um, and so if we're thinking about what's best for society as a whole, uh, we need to think in terms of generalisations. Um, I think generalisations is what we want to promote and support as far as uh, good family structures go. Um, and in general, I think sociology would say, so secular science would say that uh, married couples do a lot, lot better raising kids in general uh, than the exceptions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously you want to say that very gently, especially if a person is a single parent themselves or from a single parent home. Um, so yeah, all the things that I said about tone and so forth, gentleness and respect. But uh, look, I, I don't think it's a controversial view in secular society. I think secular society does realise the importance of uh, a stable home for kids. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, well, we'll, we will have one more Q&A session just in the next, um, uh, after the next talk. So uh, if you did have a question, you can uh, reserve it for that time. Well, we're going to continue in our time of prayer and I'm going to invite Francis up to do that for us. Hi, everyone. Um, let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you that you are Lord over all things in heaven and on earth. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and his death on the cross so that we no longer bear our sin and shame. More than that, thank you that in the resurrection of your son, we are also guaranteed eternal life and inheritance with you. Thank you for reminding us today through Arcos that we live as a minority in our rapidly changing culture and particularly so in Melbourne. Thank you that we are reminded and shown new ways of living faithfully to you in a culture which appears so hardened against you and how to ask the right questions. Father, we pray that in thinking through these ways, we can live faithfully both in private and in public. Help us delay, deny ourselves daily, take up our cross and follow Christ. May you grant us strength and through your Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom and understanding of how to live as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Help us pray and meditate over you and your word as you remain our daily portion. God, we pray for our children growing up in the church, that their hearts and minds will be crafted into ones that love Jesus sacrificially, and that parents would model that in their own lives as an example. We pray for our high schoolers, that you would help them be strong and courageous and that they would find their identity in Christ alone. We pray for our university students, that not only would they find great Christian friendship and community on campus, but that they would continue to share the gospel boldly to non-believers during such a pivotal time in their lives. We pray for those working in secular environments, that you would give opportunities to be bold in faith, and that they would also always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks them to give the reason for the hope that they have in you with all gentleness and respect. We pray for the work of our missionaries, our pastors, and all those involved in ministry, that it would be fruitful in your eyes 
and that their faith in times of hardship will prove more worth than gold. We pray for our city and our community. We pray against the increasing ungodliness of our society, a society that has become more focused on us and our desires rather than you and your sovereignty. Although our Australian values and our government are founded on Christian faith and biblical notions, we rapidly turn away from our God-given moral compass. As people have such deep-seated preconceptions of what church and being Christian is about, may you challenge these beliefs, God, through placing Christian leaders in all areas of our community who will live radical lives for the sake of the gospel. We pray that you would soften the hearts of our friends, our families, our colleagues, and may you grant them ears to hear and eyes to see so that they may understand who Jesus Christ truly is as our Saviour and Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Francis. Well, thanks for joining us uh, here this morning. We are going to break now for morning tea, uh, but come back here at 11 o'clock for session three. Uh, so morning tea in the back, uh, in the back hall, uh, but back here at 11 for um, session three. Enjoy. Enjoy.